The following story contains violence and body horror elements. Welcome to the campfire. Every month, I'll be here to bring you a new tale of terror, of horror, of the things that creep and crawl in the night. So join me as we descend into the things our minds dare not think of. It's Halloween, and it'd be an understatement to say I've been anticipating this month more than this year than before. It's this podcast's first Halloween and I thought it'd be the perfect time to read you a story that's very dear to me. I consider it one of my best stories, and before now, the only place to read it was in my first book. It's no surprise that the main inspiration of this is Lovecraft's work, but the actual event that inspired the story in full happened back in 2010. While working at a sunglass hut off the local interstate, I was feeling somewhat under the weather due to allergy season. I hacked up a giant puddle of phlegm, away from the crowd, of course, and tended to my work. Oddly enough, moth flew by and landed in the puddle. I watched it sink into it, and the story idea was born. I know. Weird, but you never know where inspiration will strike. In the following story, a researcher of oddities discovers his close friend as a deadly affliction. I give you the sickly thing. There are forces at work in this world that defy conventions. In my lifetime, I've seen and read of entities and events never before thought possible or probable. My experiences led to my attempts to chronicle these phenomena of exceptions to nature and logic. Of course, this particular line of work and hobby lent itself to be a sincerely dangerous one. Inevitably, I found myself at an impasse, and eventually I sought to have them immortalized through publishing. Unfortunately, I was taken seriously enough to find my hard work filed under the fiction category, and made small returns on the fascinating fabrications of an eccentric chronicler, as the New York Times so eloquently put it. My interest in publishing these aberrations was piqued by my close confidant, Lord Howard von Pierce. He had been reviewing the notes from a recent trip to Egypt to study the flaying reeds of a hidden oasis located in the lower regions of the Sahara. After finishing his second walkthrough of my work, he looked over at me from amidst the hefty cigar smoke and simply stated, seek publishing. I hadn't considered the notion of getting my catalog published, for good reason in hindsight, but at Howard's behest I began my journey into the literary community, leading me up to this day, and I'll be damned if I don't begrudge him for a suggestion with every waking moment. It was about two years after I had published The Dissection of Necrotizing Syringa that Howard called me upon the strangest task of my life. 
It is why I speak to you now, so at least there is but one more witness to what I have seen. I was at home mulling over various documents related to a trifecta of researchable options when a knock came at my door. I opened it to the mail carrier and retrieved a letter from his grasp. Upon opening it, I dashed out immediately to Howard's home. I knocked upon his door with great agitation. Minutes passed until the door opened, and I gasped at what greeted me. Howard stood, barely, in the frame of the door. His once vibrant eyes were marred by thick black bags. His socket seemed hollowed and his brow more wrinkled and pale. The fullness of his green irises was now dulled and partly glassy. I also noticed a hunch in his posture. Though he had had one previously, this was more exaggerated, which caused his naturally wiry frame to resemble that of a broken marionette. When he spoke, his voice was full of stone and gravel, stopping every couple of seconds to bellow out a hacking cough. Trevor, I'm glad you could make it. Quickly. Come aside. He ushered me into his home, and we made haste for his study. Howard, what exactly is going on? You look absolutely dreadful. Trevor, my dear friend, come here to the table and look into the scope. His vocal skills had diminished since we last spoke in person. It was jarring. I walked briskly over to the microscope he had set up on his table. In it was a slide with a milky white substance. As I went to look into the eyepiece, I paused for a second. I went to look back at the sample, and it had become clear. I was unnerved, and slowly turned back to the eyepiece. As my sight worked through the lenses, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to behold. But I was prepared for the worst. Through the tiny window of glass, I saw the substance up close. There, amidst the lysozymes and immunoglobins, were the strangest formations I've ever seen. This was clearly mucosal fluid, but embedded within were pools of pulsing foreign cells. They each had spider-like shapes surrounded by flagella. The most perplexing aspect about each pool was the presence of a nucleus of a dark red color. I looked up at Howard. But these are prokaryotes, are they not? He nodded at me and smiled faintly. I was incredulous. Then what? Why? I was deep in the jungles of Asia. More specifically, the Sunabons on holiday. Perhaps at this point, I should allow for some assumption that dear Howard was in pain of tongue and speech. If only but to spare your ears and fingers and my voice? Yes, yes, a splendid idea. Deep in the Sunderbonds we traveled. Our goal was a small temple a colleague of mine brought to my attention some weeks prior to the excursion. I know not of the distance we traveled, but I do recall there being a runoff of the Padma in the vicinity. The area was uncharted and inhabited by previously uncontacted indigenous people. So we had to take every precaution. I took with me two local guides who seemed quite skittish about the area as well as my old acquaintance, Edgar Clark. 
He had experienced the deep jungles of the Sunderbonds before, and was ecstatic to learn I would be venturing within. He advised me to take along a firearm to ensure the locals did not interfere violently, or at all, with our trip. But you know my apprehension to weapons of any sort. Even still, to appease his conscience and allow him to maintain a calm temperament, I allotted myself one twenty-two. Our guides strongly suggested a full complement of rations as well as an offering to the local tribesmen for a safe passage. As it turns out, the temple we sought was a three-day trek, which encompassed twice the time my colleague had proclaimed. Our journey began from Mongla and led us deep within the mangroves and freshwater swamps. We trekked for a day until we came upon a small village nestled in the heart of the mangroves. The inhabitants of the area peeked out at us from their huts with what seemed like looks of bewilderment, fear, confusion, and more. Our guide said we were the first white men they had seen, though not unheard of. Stories were passed between the villages of numerous points in our history, and I could not blame some of their reactions for it. As we approached the center of the village, the chief appeared in full ceremonial garb. Our guides translated our request for safe passage beyond their village, and Edgar produced the intended offering, a small crate packed with salmon. The chief and his companions argued between each other. We assumed they disagreed on how to respond to our offer as well as our request. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed Edgar idly reaching for his magnum in his holster. I grabbed his shoulder sharply and shook my head. He relaxed and our guides translated the discussion. The chief, he speaks ill of that place. It is the threshold to a horror that they dare not speak name. He says go there will lead to pain and death. Edgar bristled and demanded the guide move along the discussion. The sun was bearing down on the horizon through the canopy, and time was short. No matter the outcome, we would have to set up camp tonight. After lengthy negotiation, we convinced the chief to allow his passage through to the temple. Reluctantly, he offered our guides semi-detailed directions through the jungle to where it resided. Twice more, we set up camp to while away the last moons before arriving at the temple. The jungle had all but engulfed the building. Tendrils of vine and moss made their way across the yellowed slabs of stone. The height of the temple climbed sullenly through the canopy of the crooked trees. The entrance was marked with strange glyphs and writing that neither guide was able to decipher. Edgar prodded one of the guides when he began to nervously pace near the entrance, muttering to himself. Howard, Edgar turned to me. How are you feeling about this? Truth be told, the closer we came to the entrance, the more this sense overcame me. It's hard now to describe, for my mind is not as functional as it was before this. Imagine a dark cloud, a cloud with heft, and imagine it settling within your chest. That is the nearest I can come to the fear and trepidation welling within me at the sight of that place. I tell you now, Trevor, that place would inspire the very titans themselves to kneel and quake. However, I did my best to suppress that feeling and reassured my friend. We're fine, Edgar. We should press on while the day is on our side. 
We coerced the guides to follow us into the temple. Along the walls, there were torches still alight despite the state of the place insinuating disuse for centuries. The stones were pockmarked, accentuations to various pictographs. Along the way in, we saw ancient tribesmen depicted fishing, while still another showed feasts of fruit and fish. Others were more mundane minutiae of their everyday life, but served as fascinating anthropological findings. Edgar made note of everything we saw to present to his colleagues at the university. At one point, the tribesmen discovered the very temple in which we were present. Eventually, they came upon a blocked-off section and worked tirelessly to open it. It was here that their lives seemed to take a drastic change. As they broke into the blocked chambers, they discovered even more ancient structures and ritualistic instruments. Amidst this all, strange particles were drawn surrounding the excavating tribesmen as they investigated the inner chamber. The tribesmen returned to the village with some of their findings, and they set about figuring out their use. As we ventured deeper into the temple, the pictographs began to become more disturbing, more violent. What once were calm, docile drawings became hastily painted scenes of horror. Some of the original excavation party fell ill, and despite the best efforts of the local shaman, they each fell to the same grisly fate. Their bodies became aqueous, bubbling piles of flesh and blood. The tribe's village was depicted in chaos, the once peaceful scenery ablaze. The tribesmen turned on each other, casting suspicion of witchcraft upon the excavation team and accusing others of conspiracy against the tribe. Ultimately, the tribe wiped itself out, leaving one last unfinished painting, a series of strange dots surrounding a human figure. Edgar and I tried to postulate who had made these drawings, and for what purpose. It was my belief that they were to serve as a warning to others from entering the inner chamber as the tribe once did, or face the same horrific fate. We had come too far to be deterred, however, and pressed onwards. It was about ten minutes later that we finally reached the inner chamber entrance. By now, our guides were gibbering at each other in Bengali, leaving Edgar and I to venture further on our own. As we slipped into the room, we felt the air, once free and tepid, now became dank and heavy. The cloud had returned to my chest, and I could see in Edgar's disposition that it was residing within his as well. The chamber was dimly lit and ranked of mold and mildew. The silence was deafening, broken sporadically by the utterances of our now disturbed guides wafting in from the doorway. Scattered about the room were debris and tools of varying degree of disuse and deterioration. In the center of the chamber stood a stone table adorned with feathers, and stained in places a dark, ruddy color. At one of the table's feet lay a strange puddle of dried liquid. Upon closer inspection of the puddle, we saw small white chips, familiar-looking. We scanned the room and found more of the small chips strewn about amidst slightly larger chunks. I couldn't quite put my finger on it at the time, but there was something disturbingly familiar about those pieces. The walls were decorated in fading, painted symbols, none of which bore much interest to me, but Edgar was busy scribbling away. I circled the chamber twice more, looking for anything of interest. After exhausting my attention to the rest of the room, 
I approached the stone table once again. I hadn't noticed it before, but there was a large and intricate design carved deep into the table's surface. The lines were wobbly, creating an odd shape. Small dots littered the inside area of the lines. There were also straight slashing grooves that, when compared to my compass, marked the cardinal directions. The southern facing groove was deep and ran to the edge of the table. Some of the lines were caked in a dark, ruddy stain, with the southern one stained the deepest. A sudden noise caused me to look up, whereupon I saw Edgar standing, staring at the northern wall. He had since stopped writing in his notebook, and his hands hung limp at his sides. Edgar? There was no response as he continued to stare at the design on the wall. It was a peculiar construct of a nine-pointed star, within two crescents that convexed outward. Between where the lines from the points crossed on the outer displacement were tiny dots with the very center containing a vertical elliptic shape. Edgar would have remained staring at the piece had it not been for the piercing screams that emanated from the entryway to the room. Our heads snapped to in unison, and we bolted out, kicking up dust and disturbing the room's contents on our way. When we emerged, we were greeted by a silence only comparable to that inside the chamber. We needed no coercing to hastily exit the temple. We searched our camp high and low, but there was no sign of our guides. The trek back to Monglo was long, and we were lucky to survive without our lost charges. Howard, by this point, had become too tired to continue speaking. I carried him out from the laboratory room and brought him to his bedchamber. He lay down on his bed with a strained groan and settled in uncomfortably. Before he passed out, I queried him something that was eating at my mind. Howard? What of the guides? His response came out as easily as granite through a stink strainer. They just... disappeared. The next morning, Howard woke slowly. His groans and screams had all but kept me up through the night. As he made his way to the breakfast table, I could see his hunch had progressed, and his eyes were bleary and bloodshot. Somehow his story of the previous night connected to whatever was ailing him, but I hadn't yet to figure out in what way. Perhaps today he could shed more light, and we could find a way to undo this vex. So, Howard, what happened between you and Edgar after the Sunderbonds? It is a far shorter story, I'm afraid, Trevor. For a period of time, I'd say about two months, we maintained contact by letter. But soon, after that time, his letters became hard to read and infrequent. Eventually, his correspondence stopped entirely, and I was left to ponder what happened. I eventually made my way to his residence in Yorkshire. There was no sign of him anywhere, and none of his acquaintances knew where he'd gone. He hadn't left his home for weeks, Though the last any had seen of him, he looked like a shell of a human. The only odd thing I had found in his home was a puddle of some dried liquid in the corner of his bedroom, and oddly familiar chips of white. His family contacted me last week, informing me that one of his effects, his diary, was en route to my residence at his last request. I missed his funeral, you see, since they presumed he was dead, and I am in no shape to be going anywhere. It should be arriving, by lucky happenstance, today. It wasn't until noontime that a parcel indeed arrived at Howard's home.
I opened the package at Howard's request and produced Edgar's diary. The entries that came during the time of Edgar's lack of correspondence were of interest to Howard, so I thumbed through until I reached the first day that Edgar had not written to him. It detailed his current symptoms, lethargy, hacking cough, brittle-feeling bones, and blood in his excretions. Howard uttered a sharp cry as I read aloud the entry. Trevor, I have had the same symptoms. It started with a hacking cough, and as time has passed it has progressed rapidly to where I find myself now. Perhaps you have whatever Edgar had? Do you think it has any connection to the temple you were in? I am all but sure of it, my friend. Whatever fate Edgar met, I am doomed to myself. But perhaps there is something of this we can achieve. I must ask you this one favor, my dear friend. Record everything that happens to me. There is no way to stop whatever this is, but for sure we can document it for others. Perhaps a warning of our own? Howard's eyes had but a hint of a gleam to them that could be found in that glassy stare. He was resolved to his fate and seemed eager to spend his last days in deep research and study. He was to be my new case, and I was to be his observer. This was not a task I desired, but I dared not take it lightly. We adjourned to his laboratory, where I set up his lounge chair to give him comfort during the process. At first, we spent time recording notes on the initial phases of his illness. It began around the time that Edgar had ceased communication, whereupon Howard took up what he mistook for a whooping cough. From there, his appetite began to wane slowly, leaving him incapable of eating full meals and leading to emaciation. He first learned of his bones becoming brittle when suffering an injury falling out of his bed. His injury healed slowly, and only due to his applying a makeshift splint. He had no means of contact in local medical services, or so he said. But he never fully recovered. When we had fully documented the events leading up to the present, Howard sank deep into his chair. Fatigue had set in again, and I was sure this would be more frequent as the days went on. I checked his pulse throughout the night to make sure he was still amongst us, though a few times it stopped. The next morning, his eyes were entirely white. He had fully lost his vision at this point, but mused that since he was confined to his chair, that it wasn't entirely bad. His body was definitely shutting down, surrendering to the ailment. He gave a sharp hack and vomited up something opalescent. The puddle looked to contain phlegm, bile, and a substance I'd never seen before. I fitted myself with some sturdy gloves and procured a sample of this and prepared it on a slide. It was precisely the same substance Howard had shown to me on the first day I arrived. As I turned about to clean up the puddle, I saw a moth flit about the room, circling closer and closer to it. I watched in awe as the moth eventually landed onto the liquid, whereupon it settled into it. I looked to Howard, who was in the embrace of another fatigue spell. When I looked back, the moth had stopped moving and was sinking into the puddle before being completely absorbed. It slowly disintegrated and dispersed through the composition. This, too, is documented in my report you see on my desk. Weeks passed, and Howard's condition remained mostly the same. Slow deterioration of his muscles in his mouth and jaw made eating nigh impossible. 
His breathing was becoming more belabored and ghastly, and a few more times he hacked up puddles of that damned substance. Finally, in the late summer, Howard passed in the evening. He sighed and breathed one last breath before settling contentedly into his seat, the first and only time I had seen him that way since I first arrived in the spring. Over the next few days, his skin began to take on a gray, ashen texture. His body seemed to slowly collapse into itself as his flesh was eaten away. His remains slowly were consumed by the entity, leaving nothing but a puddle of ruddy liquid. I did what I could to clean his remains up and prepare them to present to his family. It was the least I could do for him. And those are the events that lead us to here. It seems like years since it happened, instead of just a few months ago. I know you may have many more questions to ask, but I'm sure you will find plenty of answers within my notes and logs. I'm afraid I have no more time to give in regards to this matter, and I assume you have more than enough information with which to write your article. Your bosses will laugh and scoff, I assure you, but do not waver in making sure they print this. Oh, pardon my cough. I only just recently came down with it. Perhaps it's just the war, seeing as it is going around. I blame this damned fall weather. Sometimes the chill is just too much, well, for me. There are those who walk around without proper fall attire. Young ones today take their health for granted, you see. In any case, I thank you deeply for entertaining my story and giving me one more chance to be heard. I am sure your paper will delight at this tale. What's that? Why the gun? Well, as I said before, my profession is unfortunately quite a dangerous one. Thank you for joining me in sharing these nights of terror. We'll be back next month with more spine-chilling tales. I look forward to seeing you again around the campfire. Sweet dreams. Thank you.